Good morning again and welcome back to our welcome here to Grace Bible Church online. As you know, we we had hoped that we could offer a physical gathering today in addition to our online service, but that, as you know, is not possible uh, yet. But as you can tell, I said it earlier, uh, Phil and I are together here at the Gakkar building. We wanted to take the opportunity this morning to assess our space and work on some additional sound technology that we want to employ going forward. I guess you could call Phil and I Joshua and Caleb. We're here spying out the promised land. I, I'll say that Phil is the more godly of the two. I don't know which one that is, but, but I'll be the less godly. He can be the more godly. But we are, here, uh, we are here looking at the building, and we're hopeful that some of, some of you can join us uh, next week. Uh, depending on the situation. So be praying for that. Continue to pray uh, as, as we progress through the week, and we'll be giving you the information uh, as we progress and as we find out what we're going to be able to do. Let me pray for us this morning, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you again and praise you. I just want to pray for this sermon. I want to pray, Lord, that your word would come through loud and clear this morning. Father, I pray that I would be glorifying my words that I speak would be glorifying to you, but that it would be your word that comes through loud and clear. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this morning we are doing the second part of the sermon I have titled Power Packed Prayer. This sermon or this prayer is so power packed that it took two parts for us to get through it. I'm so thankful for the Lord that we have so much to, to grasp and learn here that it takes, it's taking us two sermons to make it through. Let me read, uh, starting, uh, we're, again, we're returning to Ephesians uh, chapter 3, so let me read, starting in verse 14. Ephesians three fourteen. Read along together if you have uh, your Bible there with you. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you remember? Some of you will. Some of you may not. There is a product called New Coke. I certainly remember it. I was in the eighth grade, and was an avowed lover of Coca-Cola when the unthinkable happened. Uh, the unthinkable for someone who loved the drink so much. The Coca-Cola company decided to reformulate their re recipe, which they dubbed New Coke. The new flavor was much sweeter than its original, so it, would, it could compete with Pepsi-Cola. The sweeter-tasting New Coke reg beat regular Coke, or Old Coke, and Pepsi in taste test, so it was believed that this new flavor would perform well in the open market. But this was not to be the case, as many of you may remember. 
the taste test failed to gauge two things. They failed to gauge two things regarding the, the taste buds of its customers. First, while the sweeter taste performed well in one-time taste test, the Coca-Cola drinking public preferred the original, less sweet-tasting original formula as their daily drink. Secondly, Coca-Cola was an old, established, successful brand which had many loyal followers, me included. And we hated the change with a passion. I didn't even buy Coke, or, or my family didn't even buy Coke during the time of this new Coke. So 79 days after the company introduced new Coke, Coca-Cola executives announced the return of the original formula. <coughs> Senator David Pryor of Arkansas called the reintroduction a meaningful moment in U.S. history. The restored original formula was branded Coca-Cola Classic by the company and simply called Old Coke by the public. The Coke company enjoyed a significant sales boost, as you might imagine, when Old Coke was reintroduced, which led many to accuse the company of a marketing ploy to increase revenue. Ultimately, it showed the danger of messing with an established and successful brand. The company president said this. He said, the simple fact that all the time and money and skill poured into customer or consumer research on the new Coca-Cola formula could not measure or reveal deep and abiding emotional attachment to the original Coca-Cola felt by so many people, end quote, including myself. Even though I haven't enjoyed a ice-cold Coca-Cola in many years because I'm diabetic, I fondly remember how much I loved the taste of it especially out of glass bottles. At the end of the day, people love the simplicity of the original. Speaking of simplicity, there's a similar story involving Tropicana orange juice. This story is not about the actual drink, but about the pa packaging. In 2007, Tropicana hired a legendary ad agency and spent $35 million in marketing to change the packaging of their orange juice. After their change, they promptly lost 20% of their revenue in less than 30 days. The public simply didn't recognize this new packaging as Tropicana orange juice. The only thing that the company had to show for this marketing change was $55 million in lost cash and a new cap that looked and felt like an orange. That was a very expensive cap, right? Again, we see that messing with the original doesn't always pay off. And that is very true for established brands like Coca-Cola or Tropicana, but it's even more true when it comes to the church. You see, the church is not man's idea. Quite simply, the church is God's idea. And by the way, the church is a very good idea because it's God's plan. Here in Ephesians, I would argue that the Apostle Paul gives us God's blueprint for the church. And in some ways, Paul is giving us an exposition of Jesus' promise that he would build his church in Matthew 16, 18. You see, Jesus promised to build the church. He promised to protect the church. He promised to give the church his authority. But he didn't reveal much else about the church. So God chose to reveal the mystery of the church to the Apostle Paul, and he meticulously, that is, Paul meticulously explains it here in the letter, this letter to Ephesus. If we want to know how the church works, 
then we would do well to study this incredible letter and heed what it says. Changing the formula for church, changing the formula that God gives us, has given us, is a dangerous business which will always lead to failure. And we're not obliged to change the packaging either. We, could do, we would do well to go about the business of the church just like God intended from the very beginning. According to Paul, we have been given the very power of God to accomplish His work. Brethren, we, shouldn't, we should recognize that, is, that it is our business to glorify God in the church. It is our business to go about doing church the way God intended church to be done. We must realize that Christ is using His people to build His church as we take the gospel to the nations to make disciples of Christ. Incredibly, in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus told His disciples, all authority has been, had been given to Him on, in heaven and on earth. So as we proclaim the gospel, as we preach the gospel, we do so with the authority, the very authority of Christ. Therefore, we cannot fail. You realize that, church? That as you go out and you proclaim the gospel, as you do what God has intended for us to do, you cannot fail. Oh, there'll be failures. Not everybody will listen. There'll be those who object. There'll be those who stiff-arm you. But you ultimately cannot fail because you have His very power. In many ways, Paul makes this point in Ephesians 3. You see, Jesus pretty much said the same thing in, in Matthew 28, 20, when He said this. He says He promised that He would always be with His people to the end of the age. So we have not only have the very power of God at our disposal, if you will, but we also have the very presence of Christ. You see, communion with God in prayer is the main way we can experience the fullness of this truth. In Ephesians 3.10, Paul had told the Ephesian church that they were a demonstration of the wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Interestingly, I believe that Christ is demonstrating the authority He has been given by building His church. He's demonstrating the authority that God gave Him by, by winning souls, if you will, to Himself. He's demonstrating the victory that He's already had over sin and death. Brothers and sisters, you are a demonstration of God's authority, of Christ's authority. Now let me give you an incredible connection to prayer. In Ephesians 3.11, Paul says that this demonstration is in, in accordance with God's eternal purpose in Christ. Here's the amazing part. We are a demonstration of Christ's authority, but He has not left us alone to do this work by ourselves. He's given us access direct access to Him through prayer. You see, we can have boldness and confident access to Him. And it's because of this access that we don't have to lose heart, especially when the going gets tough. In 3.14, Paul, and, and you might remember that Paul is imprisoned at this point, you might remember that he's trying to tell them not to lose heart, Paul begins in 3.14 to model what I've titled in this sermon, Power-Packed Prayer. 
A few weeks ago, we began unpacking Paul's incredibly powerful prayer for the saints at Ephesus. Specifically, we find ourselves right now in verse, in verse 16, we find ourselves looking at the content of this prayer. Now, we saw last week that Paul prays in cru- two crucial ways for the saints at Ephesus and beyond. He prays that the saints at Ephesus would be first granted spiritual strength. Now look at your text in verse 16. I would argue that Paul prays in a progression for the saints at Ephesus. I would also argue that his prayers stack like a pyramid. He starts at the base of his pyramid. He says he said he beseeches God then to strengthen the Ephesian church according to the riches of his glory. And just like any strong building, this one starts with a great foundation. Paul desires the church to be strengthened by God, to be more dependent upon Him. If you think about it, true strength then comes from being fully dependent. Let me say that again. True strength comes from being fully dependent. To some, and the reason why I said that twice, is to some, this may seem like a dichotomy. But I can assure you that it isn't. In our culture, strength, in our American culture especially, strength is personified by the independent and strong man or woman. The Hollywood hero or heroine or, the, or sports superstars are examples of strength to us. In the mid to late 20th century, the Marlboro Man was the personification of strength and independence. And notice again that this strength is always personified by, by being independent. But in God's economy... Strength is personified by complete dependence, dependence on Him. A man or woman on their knees is truly strong. Back in verse 16, Paul specifically prays that this strengthening that they would get would be in the inner man through the power of His Holy Spirit. Here Paul teaches that it is, it is the strengthening in the inner man which matters to God. While our physical bodies are decaying, we are being strengthened in our inner man which is the heart or the mind of the believer. It is our innermost being that God is transforming through His Spirit into Christ's likeness. The Holy Spirit acts as an agent which enables believers to be strengthened with the power of God. And it is through the Spirit that we come to know God's power, and through the Spirit that we are strengthened with God's ability to act. Therefore, get this, the feeblest of our saints can be the most powerful as they have been strengthened through the Spirit with the power of God. In the reverse, the strongest and most independent among us are the weakest because they are dependent upon their own strength, which is their ultimate weakness. Now let's move further up Paul's pyramid as he goes on to say he wants them to be spiritually strengthened so that Christ would be at home in their life, in their heart that is. Specifically, Paul wants them to be strengthened so that Christ may dwell in their hearts. But we know that Christ comes to dwell in us at salvation. So the idea here is that he wants Christ to be the very center of their lives. He wants Christ to be the very center of your life. Just yesterday, I was talking to a pastor about the Christian walk. We agreed that we want our people to find joy in attending church. So much so that they don't want to be anywhere else but with the body of Christ. Beloved, Paul wanted the saints at Ephesus to find their joy in Christ and being part of Christ's church. 
He wants Christ to be so deeply rooted that every part of us is controlled by Him. See, this can't be contrived or forced, or it becomes merely legalistic. Therefore, Paul prays for these things on behalf of the saints. This goes beyond merely telling them how to behave. His instructions come wrapped and bathed in prayer. The true outworking of the Spirit will strengthen us in the inner man so that Christ becomes so deeply rooted that we couldn't imagine life any other way. Beloved, this is the work of the Spirit in the heart of those who have faith in God. That He works, he works in us so that we become so Christ-centered that we, if we cut us, we would bleed Christ. Paul's progression doesn't end there. Let's move up to the next level in Paul's pyramid and look at the second crucial way. This is the second Roman numeral number two, the second major point, the second crucial way that Paul prays for the saints at Ephesus and beyond. He prays that the saints at Ephesus, secondly, would be given spiritual sensitivity so that they would first comprehend the extent of, God, of Christ's love. Look at your text in verse 17. Look at the text in verse 17. He says, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now let's stop right there. The, the Greek words translated rooted and grounded are in the perfect passive tense. The perfect speech of something that happened in the past with abiding results to the present. The passive means that it's something that has happened to us. In the passive sense, the word rooted means to become firmly rooted. The word grounded then has the idea of foundation. In this context, it has the, the sense of established. So we become firmly established, or firmly rooted, that is, and established in love. The question is, whose love are we rooted and grounded in? Some commentators see the love reference in verse 17 as the believer's love. This certainly can make sense from a grammatical point of view, but I think that we need to look at the context to fully understand Paul's point. We need to look forward and backwards in the text to understand his context. Here in this verse, Paul, I think, looks back to Christ dwelling in our hearts in verse 16. As Christ becomes the very center of our existence, we are established in what? We're established in Him, but we're established also in His, in his love. We should also look forward to see that Paul makes direct, direct reference to the love of Christ in verse 19. Clearly, as we are strengthened in the inner self by the Spirit so that Christ become, comes to fully control our lives, we are firmly rooted and established in His love. Here in verse 17, Paul uses the Greek word agape for love. Agape. This word for love seeks the highest good of the one loved. We can trust that Christ always wants our highest good. He always wants the highest good for His people. I think of the prayer earlier for David. David had confidence that God was going to protect him because God has interest in the highest good of, of His people. In John 14, 15, Christ says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's face it. Many times obeying Christ is difficult. Very difficult. hard. But we can trust that He desires our highest good, and as we obey Him, he, we become rooted in His love. Now, let's go back to whether Paul is referring to the believer's love. I think we've firmly established that I believe he's look, looking at Christ's love. But 
we must acknowledge that our love for others is one of the results of Christ's love for us. Just as the Apostle John writes in 1 John 4, 19, we love because He first loved us. Beloved, I believe the outworking of Christ's love for us is our love for others. Therefore, we can always recognize those who are rooted and grounded in Christ's love by how they love other people. Here's what Harold Honer has to say about this section, the commentator. I've quoted him many times as we've gone through this series. He says this, The root and foundation of love refers to God having chosen them, predestined them, bestowed them in the beloved, redeemed them, made them an inheritance, sealed them with the Holy Spirit, made them alive, raised and seated them in the heavenlies, and placed them equally in one person in the body of Christ. Beloved, I hope you recognize this is the sovereign work that he's done in the life of every believer. This is the sovereign work that he's done in your life, if you know him. He has chosen you. He has predestined you. He has bestowed you in the beloved. He has redeemed you. He has made you an inheritance. He has sealed you with the Holy Spirit. He has made you alive. He's raised and seated you in the heavenlies. And he's placed you equally in one person as a new creation in the body of Christ. And as such, we are in the love of Christ. We are rooted and we are grounded in the, the love of Christ, and therefore uh, the outworking of that would be our love for others. Let's continue with verse 18. Look, look at your text. Paul writes that you would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. Beloved, the, the result of being established in, in Christ's love is your mental comprehension of the extent of Christ's love. That this mental comprehension increases. Now the word for comprehend here means to grasp or understand mentally. With four words, breadth, length, height, and depth, Paul sums up the unfathomable vastness of the love of Christ toward us. Now I'm an engineer, as most of you know, and I love numbers. Most of us think of infinity as a number going on forever. But have you ever thought about infinity in terms of division? If you divide something by ten, you get what? One-tenth. But if you divide a number by infinity, you get something approaching zero. But you never get there. You can keep going to infinity, dividing something by something, and you continue to get something. In other words, you always have something to divide. The, in, the, in the immortal words of Buzz Lightyear, he says, to infinity and beyond. Beloved, there is no beyond. There's just infinity in every direction. You see, this truth is impossible for our finite minds to comprehend. Beloved, the finite can't grasp the infinite. In other words, Paul here wants the believer to comprehend that which is not fully comprehensible. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try, right? As John Chrysostom states, a comprehended God is no God. End quote. Dale Ra Ralph Davis, a commentator and pastor on, uh, that preaches through the Old Testament, uh, has uh, many commentaries on the Old Testament. He says, he says this, If we cannot comprehend, we can perhaps apprehend 
at least enough to adore, end quote. Now let's, go, let's look back to understand Paul's full progression to this point. You see, Paul prays that you may be strengthened in the inner person with the result that Christ may dwell in your hearts in order that you would be you having been rooted and grounded in Christ's love might be able to grasp with all the saints the fullness of all that Paul has presented here regarding the work of God in our lives. Now we shouldn't miss this little phrase with all the saints. You see, we need to understand that Paul is talking about the church. We tend to be self-centered when we think about these things. Paul wants us to think about the church as a whole. The more we recognize, the more we all recognize what Christ is doing through His church, the more unified we become as a church. See, Christ's power has been given to the church. We are the body of Christ. Now, you might ask, you might ask if you're thinking this way, does that make Christ's love divided? No. Christ's love is never divided. Infinite love divided, uh, divided is always infinite love. Listen to A.W. Tozer. An infinite God can give all of himself to each of his children. He does not distribute himself that each may have a part, but to each one he gives all of himself as fully as if there were no others. End quote. Now Paul will pick up on this theme in, of the body and unity in the, in the next chapter. In chapter 4, we'll see the body and we'll see the unified body working together using the gifts of God so that we might demonstrate the power of Christ on this earth. Let's keep moving, though. Let's look at further in this prayer. He prays that the saints at Ephesus would be given spiritual sensitivity so that they would, secondly, know Christ's love. Know Christ's love. Look at verse 19. Look at verse 19 as we continue the, the progression. He says, well, verse 18, what is that we would comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Here Paul, here Paul com compounds the idea of Christ's infinite love. Paul starts with this little word, and. Normally this conjunction denotes a, a continuation in thought, but here I think it there's a little nuance. He, he doesn't use the normal Greek word for and, but another less used word which has the nuance which denotes an internal logic, which could be translated and so. Again, this denotes a progression in Paul's mind as he builds to the climax here in chapter 3, especially in verses 20 and 21. For you that love roller coasters, you might imagine this as the click, 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 click up the track. As you climb that first hill, there's great anticipation as you top out. The clickety-clack changes frequency and pitch, and then your stomach drops as you roar down the other side. I believe this is a great description of the intensity which is building, which is building toward the end of chapter 3. Only this is much greater than a roller coaster. Look back at your text. The word translated to know has the idea of experience. So, it brings in the thought of acquiring experiential knowledge. I've heard people say how sweet it is, and I've, I've experienced this myself, how sweet it is when God answers prayer after a long, a long trial. We experience the sweetness of realizing that God has kept us through the difficulty. This is the idea here. 
Remember Paul, as I said earlier, Paul is currently in prison for the cause of Christ. He's, he has experienced the love of Christ through great difficulty. And he wants the Ephesian church to know and experience this same love. Look back at your text. Paul says that this love of Christ surpasses knowledge. And here we are again. Paul wants the saints at Ephesus to know something which surpasses all that we can truly know. Let me say that again. Paul wants them to know something and understand something which surpasses all that we can know. In the words of Harold Honer, again, he says this, the reality of Christ's love is overwhelming to all believers. From the point of conversion and continuing as growth and knowledge of Christ progresses, no matter how much knowledge we have of Christ and His work, His love surpasses that knowledge. And the more we know of His love, the more we are amazed by it. End quote. I love the simple way which John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew put it in their systematic theology. They say this, God is truly knowable, but not exhaustively comprehensible. End quote. You see, we can know God, we can know and we can experience His love, but we can never fully comprehend Him. R.C. Sproul says it this way, the more I learn about God, the more aware I become of what I do not know about Him. End quote. I'll let Charles Spurgeon put the capstone on this verse. I think I've used this quote before. He says this, as well might a gnat seek to drink in the ocean as a finite creature to comprehend the eternal God, a God whom we could understand would be no God. If we could grasp Him, He could not be infinite. If we could understand Him, He could not be divine. End quote. Let's move on to the third, third wish of Paul. He prays our third prayer, third part of the prayer, content of the prayer, prays that the saints at Ephesus would be given the spiritual sensitivity so that they would experience God's fullness. Beloved, we've almost reached the pinnacle of the great, this great chapter and quite possibly, I believe, of this entire letter. In some ways, you could argue that we're standing on top of the Mount Everest of New Testament Scripture. Look at your text in verse 19. Paul prays that you may be filled up to the full, to all the fullness of God. Remember, this is a progression which builds upon itself, but here I believe Paul gives his ultimate prayer for the Ephesian saints. He prays for them to be filled up to the fullness of all that God is. The idea is that they would, not, that they would be completely filled, not lacking anything. There'd be no gaps or voids in them at all. <coughs> this is the same word, this is the same word that, that used to describe the church in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. He says this in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. He says, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. And he says in verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And if you remember back to that when we exposited that those two verses what we said was is that the church then the body of christ is the fullness of him the church is the fullness of christ's body 
the same word is used in Colossians 2.9. In Colossians 2.9 and 10, listen to this. For in Him, that would be in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, watch this. Verse 10. This is Colossians 2.10. He says this. And in Him, you have been made complete. Complete. So, let me make sure you understand. Same word, fullness of deity, and in Him you have been made complete is the same root word. Same root word. So in Ephesians or Colossians 2.10, it is the perfect passive verb. It means that this was done in the past and has abiding results. So this, is, this filling that Paul is talking about has already occurred positionally. It's already happened, and there's results from it. And again, in Ephesians, this filling is a passive verb. Therefore, it's not something we can actively do. Now, I would argue then that this filling is something that we already possess. We have already been filled with everything that we need. But we don't fully recognize what we possess. We don't fully recognize the fact that we've been filled with the fullness of God. Therefore, we don't live according to this truth. Notice that God's fullness can only come through the love of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, we realize the fullness of the Godhead only in Christ. Only through Christ, that is. No other way to know God. In John 14, 6, Jesus says this, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, God can't be known through some uh, religious or spiritual experience outside of Christ. He can't be experienced through some weird meditation. We don't gain access to God by emptying our minds. We experience God by having our minds filled with the knowledge of Him through His Word. Just yesterday, I saw a video flash on my phone. Two ladies talking to the trees and to the grass. They, they said some weird stuff, but one of the things they said is they were able to feel the anger of the, of the grass and what we're doing to the grass as we walk across the, the grass, I guess. One, while one was saying this nonsense, the other kept saying, that is true, that is true. I'm incredibly sad for these ladies because they're lost. But I'm going to tell you that their nonsense is not true. Their kooky meditations will not bring them any closer to the Creator and certainly won't, or to the creation, and certainly won't bring them any closer to the Creator. Here in Ephesians, we must realize that Paul is saying, if you want to know God, you experience Him by being filled with His knowledge, the knowledge of Him. Uh, that we get to know him through through we get to know him as we're rooted and grounded in love as he dwells in our heart. He comes to dwell in our heart as we as we study him in his word. Coming to the end here in Ephesians of chapter three, where Paul has revealed the mystery of the church, the mystery of God that that mystery that God, that is, has brought together Jew and Gentile, and he's made them into a new creation in Christ. 
Therefore, Paul's prayer is that they, the Ephesian church, would experience the fullness of what this means. A church which is unified in the love of Christ will experience the fullness of God in Christ. Our experience of the love of Christ is the demonstration of Christ's victory over sin and death. Let me put it this way. Paul's prayer is that what is true for these saints positionally based on the work of Christ would be true for them experientially. He wants them to understand all that they had been given in Christ. He desires them to recognize the fullness of the power of God in the life of the church. Now in this section of Scripture, Paul has prayed in two crucial ways for the saints at Ephesus. He's prayed that they would be granted spiritual strength. And he's prayed that they would be given spiritual sensitivity. Beloved, I want to speak to you now. If the Apostle Paul were here today, if he were in attendance at Grace Bible Church, I believe he would pray the same for us. We need to be granted spiritual strength according to the riches of God's glory. And if we understood all that we have been given in Christ as a church and as individuals, our lives would look completely different. Our church, beloved, would be completely different. You see, Paul petitioned God to strengthen the Ephesian church with power through His Spirit in the inner man. I pray the same way for Grace Bible Church Gainesville. I pray that we would be strengthened in this way so that Christ would be at home in our hearts. I know some of you wonder why you struggle the way you do. Could it be that Christ isn't at home? Could it be that you should pray, so that you should seek God? Could it be that you should make Christ the very center of your life? Beloved, I pray that you would know the love of God which surpasses knowledge, that you would be filled up to all the fullness of God. I pray that you would comprehend the vastness of the, the love of Christ. I pray that you would be deeply and rooted and firmly established in the love of Christ so that your love for one another would overrule every other thing. Personally, I've been blessed by each one of you as I've gotten to know you. And I've been blessed by this church. In Ephesians 4.10, Paul commended uh, the, the Thessalonians for their love of the brethren, but he urged them this. He said, but he urged them to excel still more. At this point, let me get very practical. Here at Grace Bible Church, I've been encouraged by each and every one of you. I'm encouraged by your life, but I encourage you to excel still more. But let me get very practical. During these past few months, I, we've been undergoing a pandemic. My first one. I'm sure it's your first one as well. As you probably know, the reaction to COVID-19 runs the gamut. From the government's reaction, that is, from the reaction that the government has reacted in a totally overblown way, and that we need to quickly reopen the economy. That's one side of it. In these people's mind, they, they believe that more damage has been done by shutting down businesses and, and shutting down the economy, and there's, there's people going to be dying everywhere by suicide. 
because they're not able to make money to take care of their families. On the other side of it, some believe that this disease is incredibly dangerous and must be taken very seriously going forward. In these folks' minds, we must be incredibly careful in reopening the economy. It's not worth reopening the economy if people are going to die. Many of us are somewhere in between these two. We, we, we see the dangers of reopening the economy. We want, us to, want it to be very careful, but we also see uh, the, the need of, of reopening so that we can get back to normal life. Here's what I want to encourage you, and this is tying to this sermon this morning. We must be, as we go through these next few weeks and months, we don't know how long this is going to be. Many people think it's going to be until we can find a vaccine to, uh, to uh, eradicate this uh, virus or to develop, develop the, the immunity to this virus. But we don't know how long it's going to be, but we must be aware that there are believers on each side of this argument. There are believers who take this COVID-19 incredibly seriously and they, don't want to, they want to continue to shelter in place and they want to be very careful. There are others on the other side who believe that the government has, has overreacted. Must be aware, though, that there are believers on both sides and there are believers in the middle. These next few weeks are an opportunity to love each believer while not violating their consciences. We must realize that there are areas which are not clear-cut in which faithful believers may disagree. I think our approach to these next few weeks is one of those instances. One of those instances where faithful Christians will be on both sides of this argument. As a church, we have the opportunity to model Christ-like love for one another and for the community around us. Beloved, I just want you to know that the next few weeks may actually be more difficult than the previous ones. You may see things on the internet and you're going to see people on both sides of this argument. You're going to see people saying, uh, making arguments on both sides. Believers, faithful people in Christ, we will have more opportunity to love the saints and love the lost than ever before. We need to pray for one another. We need to pray that we would be give, granted that we would be granted strength spiritual strength. We need to pray for one another that we would be rooted and grounded in love so that we would approach this time in a godly way. We need to pray for one another that we would be given spiritual sensitivity so that we would know Christ's love and that Christ's love would flow out of us toward one another and toward our community. Beloved, we have an incredible opportunity over these next few weeks and months. An incredible opportunity to live out what Paul is praying for the Ephesian church here in Ephesians 3, 14-21. We have an incredible opportunity to pray for those around us, to demonstrate the love of Christ, to demonstrate that Christ truly does dwell in our hearts through faith to demonstrate that we are rooted and grounded in His love, to demonstrate that we comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and that we would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. To demonstrate that we have been filled up to the very fullness of God. Beloved, 
I pray for each and every one of you. I pray for this church that we would not squander that opportunity, but that we would demonstrate the love of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this this morning as we begin to wrap up here. Lord, I pray, thanking you that, praising you that we can see the model of truly effective prayer. We can see the model of what what I'm calling power-packed prayer. Father, as we have unpacked this prayer, Lord, we know, we can be assured that verses 20 and 21 are true, that you are able to do far more abundantly, abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. Father, we ask that to you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations throughout eternity. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.